dads, and no matter, you know, I know on a Sunday like today when we're talking about dads, all of us had a different experience. We had different dads, dads who treated us in different ways. We were raised in different ways. Maybe we had a great dad. Maybe we had an okay dad. Maybe we had a dad who was not so good. But we all, we all are left kind of with, with not only impressions of dad, but, but like, like they were talking about in the video, we, we essentially kind of become like our fathers. And even when we don't have fathers, that still creates and affects who we are as, as men or as children, as, as kids, and it changes us. I want to talk a little bit about my dad for just a minute, and that it's kind of playing off of this video. You know, when, you're, when you grow up with a dad, you, know, you kind of look at your dad and you see your dad through, through a set of eyes, right? Through like, like your eyes as a kid, like we saw in the video. You see your dad as strong, and I remember my dad being strong when I was a kid. It's like he can effortly, effortlessly carry things that you yourself as a kid can't pick up. Like my dad had this big chainsaw from when he used to work out here in the logging industry when, when he was younger. And man, this thing was just a behemoth. And it was just, you know, probably that big around. And, you know, had to, he could have a 48-inch uh, bar on it, just a great big, huge chainsaw that he could cut through some of the big trees that they had out here at the time. And, and you know, he would just kind of pick that thing up. And, of course, he had spent years and years lugging that thing through the mountains doing logging work, and then you go to pick it up. It's like, you can't, with both hands and all your might, you cannot lift that thing up. Dads are, they're strong. They, they make things that are hard look easy, right? And then at the same time, when you go to try and do that same thing, it's impossible for you to do, right? You, you try to do the same thing they did, but because they've had years and years of experience, they can do it effortlessly, but it takes a lot of effort for you to fail doing what they just did so well. Uh, I remember this. My dad was faster. My dad was faster than probably anyone in the neighborhood. I, there was uh, one time when we had some kids. There were kind of some, uh, some uh, well, they were naughty kids. They weren't good kids that were in our neighborhood. One, and I won't say his name. I'll, I'll give him another name, Brian, because that's what his name was. I can't think of anything else to call him, but I won't say his last name. So Brian, you know, he, he was one of the kids, and, and he had a cousin who was also a bad influence on a lot of kids and, and, in the neighborhood, and, and they didn't have dads. That's one of the things. You know, they were, their parents were divorced and living with their mom, or one of the cousin was living with grandma or an aunt or something like that. And Brian took, took my uh, baseball glove, he kind of stole it from me, and then threw it in the creek. And I remember my dad had given me this big lecture about how you can't get your baseball glove wet because it'll ruin it. And so, so he took it and he threw it in the creek, and I, you know, I was just devastated. I just you know, melted because this kid had essentially just ruined my, my baseball glove, and my dad wasn't, wasn't around, and he heard me crying or upset or whatever it was, and he came down and, and said what was wrong, and I, I told him that, that this kid had what he had done, and my dad took off, she took off running, I mean, as fast, I mean, I've never seen my dad move that fast as he moved on that day, and he chased this kid down who had had a probably 30, 40 second head start, and he, he chased him down, and he brought him back, and and, uh, you know, my dad kind of worked through things and figured it out. And his, this kid's mom was at work. You know, he was home all by himself all day long. And, and, uh, but I remember after, after that, the kid and I were still there talking. He said, man, Linder, your dad's fast. Was he in the Olympics or something? 
Dad was strong. Dad was fast. Dad seemed to always have the right answer, right? They always seemed to know what the right answer is. And I remember that. That's one of the things from It's a Wonderful Life that I really love. You know, it says, ask dad. He knows. There's a plaque up in the window. It's an advertisement for some kind of something or other. And so, so little George Bailey runs off and he asks his dad about this question when the uh, pharmacist had accidentally put poison, which everybody always has laying around in the pharmacy is just a spare bottle of poison. And so he's accidentally put the spare poison in the pills. And, you know, and so little George sees this and and he runs off and asks dad, hey, I, I, should anyone ever take poison? Is that a good idea? And, you know, but he never gets to ask that question. But dad always seemed to have the right answers, right? In a lot of ways, the videos, right, that we just watched, dads are, are kind of like superheroes. In our minds, when we're kids, when we're growing up, our dads are these superhero-like figures who are faster and stronger and smarter than anyone we know. That is until... They weren't. I mean, right, at some point with all of us, with our dads, our dads went from being superheroes to super weirdos. They're no longer strong. We were stronger. They're no longer talented. We were better. They're no longer faster. We were faster. They were no longer smart. We were smarter. And when we used to be proud of them, all of a sudden we became embarrassed of them. Why? Why does that happen? It's one of the questions I ask a lot in life is why? Why do things like this happen? Why do we go through these transitions in our lives? Well, when I think about it, I think part of the reason why dads don't, don't measure up as we grow up, why they don't measure up to our perceptions, is because of our perceptions. It's not so much that maybe our dads weren't really good dads, it's that our perceptions of dads and who dads are supposed to be and what dads are supposed to be were maybe a little bit off. It's because we, as, as kids, we tend to put our dads on pedestals, right? We, we tend to put them up on, on pedestals which they aren't actually capable of standing on. And inevitably, they fall off. And once you fall off, you can't ever get back up on largely because we can't let them. We won't let them get back on the pedestal once we've seen behind the curtain. But when you think about that, that's not just something that we do with dads, right? That's something that we kind of do across the board. We do that with, with everybody in our lives, right? We, we, we don't just put our dads up on pedestals and, 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 and worship them as superheroes until they fall off, but we do the same thing when we're starting new relationships. When, when we start relationships with new friends, we kind, of, we kind of create this image of them that isn't realistic, and then over time we start to figure out who they really are, and they start to figure out who we really are, and they come crashing down off the pedestal. We do the same thing with teachers, right, in school. Some of our teachers growing up in high school or in college, or, or maybe it's teachers that, that, are, that we have an ongoing education of different ways that we put them up on pedestals, and, and maybe throughout our education, they, they fell off the pedestal, or after we graduated, we kind of got to know them in a different way than as their pupil, and they came crashing down. In fact, a lot of us in our culture today, we tend to put our children 
up on pedestals. And we put our kids up on these pedestals, and they're these perfect little creations who can do no wrong, and we tend to let them do whatever they want to do and make whatever decisions they want and live however they want and, and think and be whoever they want to be, and that's kind of how our culture is going right now. So we, don't get, we shouldn't tell our kids who they are. We shouldn't tell our kids how to think. We should let them decide for themselves. And so essentially, we've kind of put kids up on a pedestal in our society which really, when you think about it, is so absurd. We do it with presidents. We put our presidents up on pedestals. We put our bosses up on pedestals. And we put our pastors up on pedestals. Then we take all of these people that we've put up on pedestals and we define their purpose by the pedestal that we have created for them in our own minds. And then we create an image for them that they are not able to live up to, and when they fail to live up to it because they can't possibly live up to it, everything changes from our perspective towards them. From our point of view, they become failures instead of fathers, fakers instead of friends, teasers instead of teachers, hellions instead of children, dictators instead of presidents, oppressors instead of bosses, and posers instead of pastors. We see them from our point of view, and once you see it, you can't unsee it. I'm a dad now. I have four wonderful children, Hannah, Henry, Harry, and Harper, four H's, so that when I get old, I have at least the right letter to start with. Hannah's 12, and you know, maybe she's started to go through some of this transition where she used to see me one way, and now she's going to start seeing me in a different way, and Maybe some of them still see me as a superhero. I'm not quite sure how they see me. I don't know. Maybe someday we'll find out about how they saw me when they were younger. And, but maybe, you know, maybe us as dads, we, our kids maybe see us that way. You know, they, they just see us as these superheroes. But we know they, they probably see us as stronger and smarter than we actually are. Right, dads? I mean, I mean you, you know from the inside how you really are. Maybe, maybe your kids are starting to see some of the imperfections that you've known about for a long time. Maybe they see us overreact to something and underreact to other things. But at least what I know myself as a dad, I won't speak for all the other dads, but what I know about myself as a dad is that I don't tend to see myself as a superhero. I don't see myself as, as one of the epic figures in the video we just watched. I don't see myself as, you know, as Iron Man, although that's a pretty cool suit, and I'd like to have that someday. But you know, it's like I, don't, I don't see myself as a superhero. Because I know my shortcomings, right? I mean, I know who I am. I see all the ways I don't measure up. I see all the ways I don't measure up as a dad, all the ways that maybe I've fallen short as a dad when I compare myself to other dads and what other dads are doing with their kids, you know, and I, and I, and I look at, at all the perceptions of who our dads are and who the dads are in our society and, and how society says that we should be or the dads that our, our friends portray themselves as these certain kind of dads in their virtual Facebook lives, you know, you know so like, you know, I just don't measure up in a lot of the ways that I that I see other dads living out their lives as dads. I 
I know that's true for me, but I don't think that's just true for me and for the dads in this room. I think that's probably true for all of us. Right? I think all of us probably, you know, the, the perceptions people have of us probably aren't the same as our understanding of who we are, right? But who, who people see us as is not the same as who we know we are. And I think a lot of us have, have learned how to hide it in different ways, and, and we're insecure, but it, spre- it expresses itself in, in different things like overconfidence or being unsure about things or being humble or maybe even being proud or being overly quiet or overly loud, right? We, we're, we have these, these things that kind of keep us, that force us then to create a facade, an external persona that is different from the internal reality of who we really are. And at the end of the day, there's a big difference between how we see ourselves and how we try to get others to perceive us. Right? I mean, there's a difference between who I know that I am on the inside and who I project myself to be to others on the outside. And maybe if you're like me, you've had this thought before. If people knew what I really thought or who I really was, they wouldn't want anything to do with me. You ever had those thoughts? Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm being a little bit too vulnerable this morning. But if people knew the real me, Luke chapter 6, verse 12 through 16, we're in our series going through the book of Luke, and this is a particularly epic moment. It doesn't seem like it just from the text, but what we know from where this would lead, it is a particularly epic moment in the story of the gospel. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. We're going to come back to that verse at some point in the future and talk about the importance of prayer. Prayer is something very important to us as followers of Jesus Christ. We don't talk about it nearly enough, but we're going to come back to this verse and talk about the importance of prayer because here is Jesus, the Son of God, who had this eternal knowledge that we, that we, you know, we can't even really comprehend yet at this moment that, that how much Jesus really knew, and yet he knew so much he still went out and spent the whole night praying, communicating with his Father. Verse 13, when morning came... He called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated as apostles. So Jesus had this big crowd of people following him, right? He had hundreds, if not thousands of people that were following him around that were called his disciples. Typically, when we think of the disciples, we tend to narrow it down to the 12 disciples, but Jesus had a lot of people that were following him around that would be called his disciples. And out of those disciples, he chose the 12 whom he designated as apostles, which kind of sets the context maybe for a little bit more of the frustration that the Pharisees had about, the, about Jesus' disciples, his followers walking through the fields of grain, taking off the heads of grain. You know, maybe there's a lot of them, and they were able to take off a lot, so it was quite a, a big thing. But he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated as apostles. Simon, whom he would rename Peter, uh, Peter's brother Andrew, James and John, who were brothers, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So two Judases. 
So after spending the whole night in prayer, he called the disciples to gather together around him, and from this bigger group of disciples, he called out 12. He called out of the group these 12 that we know as the apostles. What's the difference between a disciple and apostle? Let's look at that really quickly so we can kind of set some, some context for our understanding of what we're learning this morning. A disciple is, is a student, a learner, a pupil, someone who willingly and chooses or maybe gets chosen to come under a teacher. And this day and age would have been for a set period of time, maybe for three years, maybe for longer. And you would, you would spend that time following your teacher around, learning everything. And then at some point, you would become your own teacher with your own disciples. But an apostle is, is an entirely different word. It's an entirely different designation. An apostle is a delegate. It's a messenger. It's one sent forth with orders. It would actually be the sent ones would be the way you could describe the apostles. They were the, they were the sent ones. And in fact, part of the root word of apostle is used throughout the New Testament a whole bunch of times just to talk about sent. And it's used of Jesus, how he was sent from heaven down to earth. And it's used of the disciples, how they were sent and how Paul was sent. It's all a part of the same word. The word apostle means sent ones. They are sent. So they had a little bit different mission being called out. And if you're like me, you probably ask yourself some questions like this. Okay, so here's this bigger group, and Jesus calls out 12 from this bigger group. And so what did Jesus see in these 12 guys that, that he called them out of the crowd to be something a little bit different? I mean, certainly he saw something, right? Probably. I, I, I really don't know what he saw. The Bible doesn't tell us, you know, the qualities and, 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 and the qualifications that these 12 guys would have had to be disciples. They don't really know any of that backstory. We just know that Jesus called them out of the group. So he probably saw something what we don't know. But if you read through the Gospels, you really can kind of get a picture of who these guys are, and maybe that should frame our thinking a little bit today. For instance, Peter. Peter, the one who would go on to build the church, and Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and he gives the first sermon where thousands are converted. Peter, you know, this kind of epic figure that we've created and conjured up and romanticized in our mind, he was also the one that always put his foot in his mouth who walks on the water but then gets distracted by the storm, who calls Jesus the Messiah and then tries to tell the Messiah how he should handle his mission. Peter, who denied Jesus three times. And this is the guy? This is the guy that Jesus is going to build his church on? What did Jesus see in Peter? All right, James and John, you know, he must have seen something. They're entrepreneurs, right? They had this fishing business. They, you know, they had this entrepreneurial business mind that, 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 that Jesus probably really wanted in his group, but they're also known as the, the sons of thunder. You ever had anyone in your life that was known as a son of thunder? It might be uh, more, more maybe the sons of temper. The ones who erupt... Right, The ones who just seem to, out of nowhere, what in the world were you thinking? You know, I'm, and these are, these, these are, I mean, John was, was like the guy. I mean, he was the closest one to Jesus. 
All right, so there's, there's the top three. Jesus chose Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Thomas always seemed to have a hard time believing by faith. He always seemed to need a little bit more than just faith. He always seemed to need just some evidence, some proof. Call him Doubting Thomas, poor guy. That's his reputation. Andrew, you can imagine Andrew. We don't know a whole lot about Andrew, but Andrew was the one that really found Jesus and brought Peter out to meet Jesus. And then he basically gets forgotten about. Imagine how he felt. Matthew was a tax collector. We talked about him at length. These are the guys that Jesus called out to be the sent ones. Jesus called these 12 guys out to be the sent ones, to send them out, to be the apostles, the ones who would be his official delegates, his official messengers, his official ambassadors to go out and spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. See, I think we've maybe romanticized them and and, and put them up on pedestals, but the reality of it is these were 12 average, ordinary human guys. We think they must have had something about them that showed that they were worthy of being called an apostle, that there must have been some sign or trait that Jesus saw. Maybe there were. Maybe there were some signs and traits, and, and, and we could maybe figure some of that out. I don't know, but... We think it's because of who they were that Jesus called them. We, we think it's because of the men, that they were men of stature. That must be why Jesus called the twelve. Maybe that was part of it, but that certainly wasn't all of it, especially when you follow their story throughout the rest of the New Testament. This is what we learn, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. He... God saved us and called us to a holy life not because of anything we have done but because of his own purpose and grace. God saved us and called us to a holy life. That word called there is very important. Jesus called the disciples together. Jesus has called us to be his followers. We are called to be Christ-like, to be like Christ. We are called to a holy life, and the reason we're called to a holy life has nothing to do with what we have done up to the point where we were called that caused us to earn our right to be called. The reason we have been called is because of his own purpose and grace. Not because of what the disciples had done, but because of God's greater purpose, because God is great. Not because we are superheroes, not because we are super dads and super moms, not because we are super holy, super, super humble, super selfless, or super giving. That's not why God calls any of us. God doesn't call us because we have achieved a status. God calls us because of his purpose and his grace. Not our purpose, not our perception of what we think our purpose should be if we were God and what we think God should call us into. His purpose, his grace. Not our perspective, not our ideals, not our dreams, 
not because we've managed to stay up on someone's pedestal, not because we've managed to live a good life in our own strength and our own ability. That's, that's not why God has called any of us this morning. None of us are called because of what we've done. Not a single person in this room is called because of what we've done for God. We are called because of who He is and what He did for us. You're called this morning because of what Jesus did for you. You're called because of who Jesus is. The reason you're here this morning is is not because you've lived some kind of perfect, awesome life, but because Jesus lived the perfect, sinless life, and because of who he is and what he did in dying on the cross to pay the ransom to set us free from our sinful, selfish lives and rising from the dead, conquering death, hell, and the grave, giving us this new resurrected, resurrecting, ongoing resurrection life. Because of that, because of who he is and what he did, he calls us out of our old lives and into a new life full of His purpose and full of His grace. See, I think the reason our dads, our friends, our teachers, presidents, bosses, and pastors fall off the pedestals we put them on is because of how we regard them. It's how we think of them. We put them on the pedestals, right? We create the pedestals in our own minds that they stand on. They didn't ask to be on them. We put them there. And when they fail to measure up to the standards required by us to be on that pedestal, we condemn them. Condemn them. Why do we do that? We do it with our dads. We do it with ourselves. Why do we do this? Well, I think it's because of this. I think it's because we're looking at everything wrong. We're looking at ourselves wrong. We're looking at others wrong. We're seeing everything the wrong way. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 through 21. Because Paul is talking about his ministry, and he says, because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. I love this next several sentences here. God knows we are sincere, and I hope you know this too. Are we commending ourselves to you again? No. We are giving you a reason to be proud of us so you can answer those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart. Paul is saying, look, don't, don't go bragging about you know, the, the spectacular ministry that you see all of these others having. Maybe they're sincere, maybe they're not. You know, maybe they're fakers, maybe they're doing things that they, for the extravagance. You know, don't, don't be comparing us to them. Instead, be, be grateful for our hearts. Our hearts, not, not, not what you see, our hearts. Verse 13, if it seems we are crazy, the reason we're crazy is to bring glory to God. That's awesome. If you think I'm off my rocker, I'm off my rocker because I'm trying to bring glory to God. That church with that crazy pastor, he's crazy because he's bringing glory to God. And if we are in our right minds, it's for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Christ's love controls us. Not my love, not my ideals, not my thoughts. Christ's 
love controls us. Look, we're going to get into this more. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. We've talked about this a lot. Since Christ died for all, we also believe we all have died to our our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. So when we receive this new life, we're no longer living for ourselves, our own ideals, our own standards, our own pedestals. We are living our lives for Christ who died for us and was raised for us. Verse 16, so we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. So, that word so Because of all of this stuff, because of everything that Paul has just said, because of this new life in Christ, because we're no longer living for ourselves, but we're living for Christ who died for us and was raised for us, because of this new identity we have in Christ, because of all of this new thinking we've received from Christ, we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. Those are Paul's words, not mine. And listen to the example he gives. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. At one time, we evaluated Christ merely from a human point of view. And if you look at Paul's life, you see exactly how that evaluation went. He was a Pharisee, and he condemned Christ as someone who needed to be executed because of the harm he was doing to his own position and his own ability to to rule and control people as a Pharisee. That was how he regarded him, but how differently he sees him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ, we come to this verse all the time, Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old is gone. A new life has begun. What happens in this new life? We stop evaluating others from our human point of view. We stop seeing others and ourselves merely from our human perspective. And, verse 18, all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. Reconciling people, that is what God has given us, the the goal of reconciling people to him. What happens when we put someone up on a pedestal and they fall off of a pedestal and they disappoint us? Haven't we basically become God in that scenario, in that situation where we have decided and determined what is worthy of being put up on a pedestal and when they don't meet our criteria for being on the pedestal, we just kind of flick them off and flick them off and flick them off, flick them off. But we've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. We're not putting people on a pedestal and waiting for them to fail to meet our standards and expectations. Now, because of the work of Jesus Christ, who has given us a different way of looking at people, we now have the task, instead of flicking people off the pedestals, of reconciling them back to God. Uh, Understanding that 
it has nothing to do with my expectations and my standards of how somebody should be living their life and, and the expectations that, that gets them up on the pedestal in the first place. I need to destroy my pedestals, blow them up all the way down to the very foundations and realize that my whole point and being in relationship with these people that are around me, with the fathers and the friends and the pastors and the bosses and the presidents and all of these different people, the, the reason I am in a relationship is to see them from God's point of view and to be about the work of reconciling them to God. Why? Because God was in Christ, God through Christ, God the Father through Christ was about this business. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So when we fail to measure up to God's standards and be acceptable on God's pedestal, Instead of flicking us off, which is what we deserved, he sent Christ. He sent Christ to reconcile us, to make things right again. So, we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. And we speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin, to become sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. God made him who knew no, no sin to become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. So, so the reason we are ambassadors to the world for all the world that is seeing themselves in the wrong light and all the wrong pedestals and all the wrong evaluations and all the wrong criteria, our goal is to go out into the world and see them from God's point of view, not our human point of view, and go and see them and say, look, Jesus came so that you don't have to live like this anymore. He has a new purpose and a new grace for you that he wants to reorient your entire life around. We have to stop evaluating everyone from our human point of view and be ambassadors of grace and purpose. See, Jesus didn't call the 12 apostles because of all the perfect things that he saw in them when he called them. He saw their purpose and the grace that they would be covered in. That's why, that's why he called them. He called them for the purpose he saw in them. Remember all the verses that we've read and covered how Jesus read the hearts of the Pharisees. He knew what was in their hearts and what was in their minds. Jesus knew what would, be, what would have been in the hearts and in the minds of the disciples and the apostles when he called them. He didn't call them because their hearts were clean. He called them because of his grace and how he would make them clean through his finished work on the cross. And they would become sent ones, apostles sent to proclaim this message to the world. We kind of get hung up on this, and it's something we should get hung up on because it's truth. We get hung up on this idea that, that, that the gospel is all about changing us. And that's at least partly true. It's at least partly true that, that the reason behind the gospel is to change us so that we become new creations. 
so that we are changed from death to life, right? So that we're resurrected from the dead and brought to this new life in Christ, which is what we celebrate when we celebrate baptism, being buried with him through baptism, putting to death our old self, all of our old ways, all of our old selfish habits and our old selfish patterns. We put that to death, and then we are raised to this new resurrected life in Jesus Christ, And so we receive this gift of new life, and we are changed. We're changed now. We're supposed to see ourselves in a different way. We're made new. God has made us new. We're not who we used to be. We are now who God says we are. God doesn't see us for all of our shortcomings and all of our flaws. He sees me as righteous and redeemed because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. That is how he sees me. Now he sees me through the eyes of grace. He sees me through the eyes of purpose. And I'm not someone who has just come up short. I'm someone who's covered in grace. I'm not my mistakes. I am Christ's purpose for my life. That's my identity. I'm not who I was. I'm not all my shortcomings. I'm not all of my flaws. I am Christ's purpose for my life. I am who God says I am. I am not who I was. I was bought with a price. Who I am is no longer determined on what I'm able to accomplish, but on what Christ has already and eternally accomplished for me in his resurrection. This is the truth of the gospel, but it's only part of the gospel. We are changed. That is true. We are made new. That is true. You are a new creation today if you are in Christ. You are made new. The old is gone. But there's another part of it that that, that comes, that, that we aren't just made new, but that when we are made new, it changes how we see others. Our newness does not only affect our perspective of how God sees our lives and the covering of our own sins with God's grace, but now it changes the way we see everyone in the world around us. We no longer regard any of them from a human point of view. So we don't judge our fathers, our friends, teachers, bosses, presidents, and pastors the same way the world does. The world judges based on their silent criteria and how they're not living up to that. We don't condemn them for not measuring up to our own standards. Instead, we see them for the potential they have in God's kingdom. I see them for the potential that God's grace has to make them new and for the purpose that God has for them that they don't even know or haven't even realized yet and that their pedestal gets redefined not on their own accomplishments, but on the accomplishment of Christ in our entire lives now become built on the foundation of Christ as the cornerstone and the 12 apostles who lived out this life after the resurrection. Our lives are built on the work that they exemplified for us. And their example was not to just take Christ and hoard Christ and keep Christ for themselves so that they could feel better about themselves and their own personal identity, but it changed how they saw not only the people around them, but the entire sphere of God's creation, it changed how they saw others. See, we're not standing on our own pedestal for our own name. Now we're standing on Christ for his namesake. 
So when I'm pleading with you on a Sunday morning like this, I'm not pleading with you for my own benefit, for my own reputation. I'm pleading with you for Christ and the benefit of Christ and the grace of Christ and the love of Christ and the eternal life that Christ wants us to live and start and enjoy right now as we make our way into eternity with him. I'm not not pleading with you for me. I'm pleading with you for Christ, and Christ has something so much better for you. This is the appeal he is making to you this morning. Be reconciled to Christ. Be reconciled to God's standards, God's understanding, God's expectations. Be reconciled to what was paid for you so that you could receive it as a gift. And start seeing everyone through his eyes. Start seeing everyone no longer from a human point of view, but from God's point of view, where we see them struggling under the weight of their own pedestals that they've made for themselves. We see them struggling under the weight of the pedestals that others have made for them, and they're trying to live up to their expectations. We we see the struggle and the burden, and we, our desire is not to condemn them for not living up to those standards, but to say, we want to see you released and set free from the human burden so that you can go and experience God's grace and God's purpose for your life. We want to see you reconciled to God. We implore you. This is what God has for you. This is what would be the call of the 12, to live sent. They would live sent. They would become ambassadors. They would become the message carriers. They would become the official message keepers of the kingdom of God and go out and live their lives sent. They were the sent ones. After the resurrection of Christ and after they received the Holy Spirit, which empowered them to live the life that they had been given to live in Christ, they became ambassadors for Christ and they would go out and live sent into all the parts of the earth where we sit now as a result of their living sent. They were sent out to reconcile the world to Christ. They were sent out to preach the resurrection of Christ. They were sent out to show that Jesus was who he said he was. They were sent out to live Jesus in front of these people, to live lives that, 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 that honor Jesus and not in their own power, but by the power of Jesus that was living in them through the gift of the Holy Spirit. They were sent out to show people Jesus so that in seeing Jesus, they would learn how to see themselves and understand themselves, how God designed them and how God created them. And they would learn how to see others as God designed them and God created them. They would receive grace and see through grace. really all kind of comes down to this. It's only in seeing Jesus for who he was that we can see ourselves and others for who they're supposed to be. Do you have some superheroes in your life that have fallen off their pedestals? Do you have some people that you've maybe built up a little too much and they're not capable of staying up there? Maybe how we need to see them is through the eyes of Jesus who sees us through the eyes of grace. So I have three questions for you as we finish up this morning. How do you see yourself? What's your view of yourself this morning? Do you see yourself as 
pretty awesome and maybe you've kind of got this whole thing figured out and you're kind of living out the glory because you've met your own expectations and standards? Do you see yourself as a big bag of mistakes and a worthless heap of rubble? How do you see yourself? My next question is, how do you see others? Maybe you understand God's grace and you see yourself in the right way. You see yourself as a new creation. You see yourself as covered in grace, but, but you haven't yet made that transition to starting to see others in that way, and you're still condemning everyone in the world around us because they're not living up to the expectations we couldn't live up to, so we haven't really allowed that grace to transform how we see others. How do you see others? And if we're not seeing ourselves as made new, and if we're not seeing others, not merely from our human point of view, but from God's point of view, then, then the, the reason we might not be seeing clearly on those two things is because we're not seeing Jesus clearly. How do you see Jesus today? Maybe you just see Jesus as a mythical superhero. That's how he's kind of characterized in a lot of ways. It's a lot of our understanding. He was just this superhero that kind of came and conquered evil. It was never a fight, by the way. God was always going to win. But maybe we only see Jesus as Iron Man, right? Because Iron Man is, he's human, right? I mean, he's human and he wears this suit and so somehow he's a superhero, Right? So Jesus, Iron Man, you get the correlation there? Maybe we see Jesus as Iron Man and not as our Savior and the Savior of the world. Maybe we've tried to define how he's saving the world in superhero terms when really how he saved the world was his terms. And his terms were nothing like we expected, right? I mean, who expects the king to come as a little baby spend their first nights in a feeding trough? Who expects a king to ride in on a donkey and who expects a king to be crucified and humiliated? That's not how a superhero would have done things. Maybe we're not quite seeing Jesus clearly. And what we need so that we can see others, so we can see from God's point of view, is we just we need to see Jesus. Do you see Jesus? Have you have you seen Jesus lately? It's maybe a better question is have you even been looking for Jesus? Or are we so busy and caught up with our own pedestals and our own this is and that's is that we haven't even looked for him in a while. How do you see Jesus? Let's stand together this morning. As the worship team comes, I would ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to pray for us. If you're here this morning with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, and you would say, I'm not seeing myself how Jesus sees me, I need to... I need to see myself differently. I want to see myself with God's eyes for me this morning. I don't want to see myself with my eyes or the world's eyes. 
If you'd say that's you and you'd like me to pray for you, would you just raise your hand and put it up real quick? Yeah, put your hands down. If you're here this morning and you'd say that I'm not looking at others right. I kind of got myself figured out, but I'm looking at others wrong. I want to make sure that I'm looking at others with God's eyes and not my own eyes, my own expectations. I want to see people how Jesus sees them, and I need God's help with that. Would you raise your hands? Yeah, you can put your hands down. If you're here this morning and you would say, you know, I've never really looked at Jesus. I've tried to live this life, and I've tried to do it on my own and live up to the standards I thought were expected of me, but but it's not working out so well, and I want to see Jesus. I haven't seen Jesus yet. I've I've tried everything else, and I just need to see Jesus. I want to see him. I I want to receive him. I want to put my faith in him. I want to give my life to him this morning and just surrender all of my expectations for who I'm supposed to be for his higher call and his purpose. If you want to see Jesus this morning, would you raise your hand? Yeah. You can put your hands down. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that even this morning, even the results of the words that I've spoken and shared are not up to me. I thank you that, that what is going on in this room is because of you, that, that, that you are speaking to our hearts, that you're speaking to my heart, that you're speaking directly to me and, and how you want me to understand how you see me, that you're speaking to the hearts of everyone in this room, that, that you're right now reshaping how we think. I thank you that this is a work that you do, not a work that I have to do because I know that I am not able to do this work, but I thank you that through your supernatural ability of the Holy Spirit alive and active in our hearts and in our midst this morning that you can accomplish a work in each and every one of us that only you can take credit for, and I thank you for that this morning. So, Father, for those who are saying that they want to be able to see themselves with a new set of eyes, I pray, Father, that in this moment that you would give us this gift of seeing ourselves how you see us. Father, help us to see ourselves not through the failed expectations we have of ourselves, not through the failed expectations that others have of us and how we haven't met up to any of those, how we haven't lived up to your expectations of us. Help us, Father, to to eradicate and erase all of those from the lenses through which we see our lives and to replace them with the statements of what you say we are, that I am made new. I am in Christ. I am a new creation. I am his. I am one of his children. I am an heir. I am a co-heir with Christ. I have a seat at the throne. I am a child of God. All the things that I thought I was, I no longer am. I am now who Christ says I am. Help us to see ourselves in that light and in that light alone, Father, as your children this morning. For those of us who have said, we're not seeing others how you want us to see them, I pray, Father, that you would now cover our lenses with grace. Give us the lenses to be able to look at everyone we encounter in our lives throughout the rest of this day, throughout this afternoon, as we see our dads, as we see family, as we talk to family on the phone, to see them not as we saw them growing up, not as we have seen them to this point in our lives, but to see them as you see them, as people who are either walking in your kingdom and walking with you in their lives or covered in grace, or those who desperately need that connection and need us to be an ambassador that lives a sent life so that they can receive the gift of God's grace. Help us to see them how you see them. Father, help us to stop seeing them for all the things on the outside, all the fruit of the life that is not surrendered to God. Help us to just start to see that that is 
the corruption that their lives are veiled in and that there's something underneath that you see that is so great that you want to redeem in them. Help us to see beyond what's on the surface and see no longer from a human point of view, but to see how you see that we might live sent. We might live as ambassadors sent into their lives that they might see Christ through us and experience Christ in their own life. And for those this morning, Father, that were praying that they want to see Jesus, they haven't seen Jesus in a while, they haven't seen Jesus clearly, maybe they've never seen Jesus at all, I pray, Father, right now in this moment as we stop So we remember how great a price you paid so that we could be sons and daughters. As we participate maybe in something that for us has become a ritual and just this thing that we do after the sermon on Sundays and we participate in it again here in just a few short moments, Father, I pray, revive, bring back to life the image of Christ and what was paid for us. Let us see Christ. Let us see him there hanging on that, cro- on that cross. And when we look at that cross, let us not feel pity for him because he gave his own life. He chose to give his life. Instead, Father, let us see love. Let us see the love that the Father had for us, that he was willing to send his son to die for us so that we could become children of God. This is how great his love is for us. Father, help us to see Jesus and the love that the Father had for us and that he sent his son into the world to become one of us. He, he left behind his throne and his kingly crown and he walked on this earth so that we could see the face of God on, that the visible form of God would be walking on this planet so that we could see God and that not only would he walk here, he would die here and he wouldn't just die for no reason, but he died for us. Father, help us to see Jesus this morning. And I pray that we would not leave him hanging on that cross, but Father, help us to see that he rose from the dead, that the greatest of all acts in all history books and all comic books and all superhero books, the greatest of all acts that has never been accomplished by anyone other than this one person, our King, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, it was accomplished in defeating death, hell, and the grave. And those things that should cause us the greatest fear now give us the greatest joy because our King of kings and our Lord of lords rose victorious from the grave and he is the only one who has defeated those things and he is the only one that now imputes victory into our lives from his victorious state that he eternally lives in and gives us the grace and the gift of living in eternal victory for being his son, his daughter, his chosen ones. We thank you for this gift. Let us see this gift and worship you as a result of receiving this gift this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.